Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Village Farms International Second Quarter 2021 Financial Results Conference Call. This morning, Village Farms issued a news release reporting its financial results for the second quarter and the June 30th, 2021. That news release, along with the company's financial statements, are available on the company's website at villagefarms.com under the investor's heading. Please note that today's call is being broadcast live over the internet and will be archived for replay both by telephone and via the internet beginning approximately one hour following completion of the call. Details of how to access the replays are available in yesterday's news release. Before we begin, let me remind you that forward-looking statements may be made today during and after the former part of this conference call. Certain material assumptions were applied in providing these statements, many of which are beyond our control. These statements are subject to a number of risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed or implied in forward-looking statements. A summary of these underlying assumptions, risks, and uncertainties is contained in the company's various securities filings with the SEC and Canadian regulators, including its Form 10-K MDNA for the year ended December 31, 2021, and Form 10-Q for the quarter ended June 30, 2021. 21, which are available on Edgar. These forward-looking statements are made as of today's date and except as required by applicable securities law. We undertake no obligation to publicly update or revise any such statements. I would now like to turn the call over to Michael DiGilio, Chief Executive Officer of Village Farms International. Please go ahead, Mr. DiGilio. Hey, thanks, Anus. Good morning, everyone. With me for today's call is Village Farms Chief Financial Officer Steve Ruffini. And I am very pleased to have with me Pure Sun Farms President and CEO Mandish Dosanj, who is at our corporate headquarters here in Orlando for management meetings and will join us for Q&A at the end of the call. Uh, so I would encourage uh, anyone who has some questions uh, for Mandish to, to ask him on this Q&A portion of the call. Excited to have you here. For today's call, I'll spend a few minutes highlighting the key takeaways for the quarter, most notably the continued strong sales momentum at Pureland Farms, as well as the benefit to our bottom line of operating at scale. Uh, Steve will then review the financial results, and I'll return with some concluding thoughts about why, as Village Farms' largest shareholder, I continue to be so confident in our ability to drive continued value near-term, medium, and long-term. And then we'll open the call for your questions. So starting with Pure Sun Farms, Q2 was a record quarter since entering the retail branded market for the fourth quarter, uh, in the fourth quarter of 2019, so almost two years ago. Uh, Record retail branded sales were up 22% sequentially, our fourth consecutive quarter of 20-plus percent growth, and 135% up year over year. Record total sales Uh, Net sales were up 38% sequentially and 70% year-over-year. And a record adjusted EBITDA since launching our retail branded products in October 19, up 165% sequentially and 264% year-over-year to $9.1 million Canadian. At the top line, the same two drivers that I have discussed on prior calls continue to propel our growth, which continues to outpace the broader cannabis market. Each of these drivers are the result of conscious decisions as part of our go-to-market strategy under the leadership of the Pure Sun Farms management team, which continues to prove itself to be the best in the industry without any doubt. The first is our decision to initially focus on the dried flower segment of the market, in which we knew we would have a significant competitive advantage and could excel out of the gate to establish our everyday premium brand with consumers and generate near-term cash flow and profit. So using Ontario as a proxy, dried flour, including pre-roll products, still account for more than 70% of all recreational sales on a dollar basis. 
and that has been remarkably stable for the past several quarters. But what's even more compelling is the continued dollar growth in these categories. Combined, dry flour and pre-rolls products grew $30.2 million just from Q1 to Q2. That's five times the $6 million in growth from the three largest 2.0 categories combined. Even on a percentage basis, dried flour and pre-rolls meaningful, meaningfully outpaced the major 2.0 categories. On top of this, industry profit returns in this category are still sorting themselves out. All of this is not to diminish the importance of size of the opportunity in the 2.0 market, but these market trends support our calculated decision to focus first on flour, the biggest opportunity with the biggest return, where we can believe we can dominate to build consumer and customer loyalty going forward and hit our 20% goal. The second driver of top-line growth is the overwhelming consumer response to everyday premium products, the foundation of our market share leadership in the dried flower category. For the second quarter, Pearson Farms was once again the top dried flower brand within the Ontario Cannabis Store and remained the top-selling brand of dried flower for the 21-month period beginning October 2019 by both dollar and kilograms. And I'm very pleased to report that in the month of June, for the first time, Pure Sun Farms was a top-selling licensed producer of dried flour in Ontario by both kilograms and dollar value, a performance we repeated in July as well. I'd like to say that again, Pure Sun Farms, as a single brand, sold more dried flour in Ontario in June and July of this year than any other licensed producer. We know... There has been plenty of discussion about consolidation and owning multiple brands to achieve market share in Canada. But as a Village Farm shareholder, I like the economics of growing market share organically, especially with these results and the valuations others are paying for the consolidation. I'm also pleased for the first time to comment publicly about the market share performance for Pure Sun Farms for both Alberta and British Columbia, our second and third largest provincial markets. We are comfortable sharing that particular data, which is from a, a group called Buddha, Cannabis Retail Solutions Provider, because it is compiled from actual sales data from a broad sampling of retail stores in each province, providing an accurate reflection of overall performance in each province. It is the same data we use to manage a business in each of these provinces. The Buddha data shows that Pearson Farms is also the number one flower brand by dollar sales in each of Alberta and British Columbia. And not only for the second quarter of this year, but in every month going back to October of last year, which is as far as back as we have the data. Not surprisingly, our brand and product strategy, which has been so successful in Ontario, is also successful in Alberta and BC. Our Q2 results also benefit, benefited from a good quarter for non-branded sales as we took advantage of a number of strong margin generating sales opportunity in the quarter. As a reminder, our non-branded sales must meet, meet a profitability threshold, as well as make sense within the contents of our retail branded strategy and competitive strategy. As many Canadian cannabis businesses are still shifting strategies and trying to find their place in the ecosystem, we expect to continue to see more variability in our non-branded sales from quarter to quarter, but we like how we are positioned and we like the returns from this business. Perhaps most importantly, Q2 was also a, Q, a quarter that clearly demonstrated the earnings power of Pure Sun Farms as we benefited from the Delta III facility operating at full capacity throughout the quarter. In a quarter that I will remind you benefited from the longer spring and summer days in both terms of yield and lower energy costs. But it's not just about economies of scale. With each quarter, we continue to get better and more efficient to continue to strengthen our everyday premium experience for consumers. In cultivation, we are engaging and enhancing bud size flower quality through improved cultivation and processing techniques, and we continue to learn, refine, and leverage our improvements. And around processes, we are doing proprietary work in key areas such as drying at scale, as well as enhancing controls and consistency of execution. And we are extending our competitive advantage through innovation. We recently made technology advancements in pre-roll production, enabling us to significantly increase output, which contributed to a three-fold increase in our pre-roll sales 
within the Ontario Cannabis Store from Q1 to Q2. And then we had a record month in July as well. And I will note, with expanded margin due to production efficiencies, we have developed a new proprietary vape formulation through extensive sensory evaluation work to specifically address consumer wants. And we are consistently focused on strain development through pheno hunting in our 1.1, soon to be 2.2 million square foot of greenhouse area, with a particular focus on high THC strains, some of which will be launched in the coming months. All in, Q2 is an outstanding quarter for Pure Sun Farms, not only for its continued strong operational, financial, and market share performance, but for the investment groundwork that this performance means for the quarters to come. So before I turn to our produce results, I want to take a moment to be clear about the importance and value of those operations to the future of Village Farms, especially in light of the variation in the produce financials over the past 18 months. Our U.S. produce operations include four high-tech-controlled uh, environmental greenhouses, more than 5.5 million square feet with a replacement value greater than $300 million U.S., an exceptional experienced growing team and labor force, and years of operational experience with the specific facilities, not dissimilar to our Canadian assets. They are located in one of the best growing climates for cannabis in the continental United States. They can, and I firmly believe, will become one of the largest and lowest-cost cannabis production facilities when we are permitted to operate in the high-THC cannabis market in the U.S. This is right out of the strategic playbook, and you can see how we are executing this strategy in Canada. With the benefit of our Canadian experience, our internal modeling forecast that these four U.S. facilities are capable of generating at least $1 billion in annual revenue for village farms in a high THC product category. Strategically, we like the underlying value of this option and manage the produce business targeting break-even EBITDA to preserve this optionality. Turning to produce performance, Q2 is another strong quarter operationally, and we continue to see the benefits of improvements that we have made in the past year and a half or so. We are also benefiting from our experience and learnings we have gained. Also so important in agriculture in managing the brown reduce virus that has impacted tomato crops worldwide, which has negatively impacted our production in the last two years. And multiple breeding uh, programs are underway by multiple seed companies to build in resistance in the short term uh, ahead. Still, we are... We continue to see with some of the weakest tomato pricing for certain key categories in the past decade as grocery store traffic dwindled and the reopening of away-from-home dining. Industry-wide demand dropped off while supply reflected planning decisions made during the lockdown period. There are signs, however, that tomato pricing is trending back towards normalized pre-pandemic levels, and with our operational improvements, and additional leadership, I remain confident that the produce business will achieve its targeted break-even EBITDA contribution and maintain optionality to leverage this business for higher returns in cannabis in the future. Recently, we had a new leadership in our produce business appointing industry veteran Eric Janke as Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing. Eric will be responsible for overall productivity and effectiveness of the produce sales and marketing team with a particular focus on driving overall sales performance and will also support the corporate team in capitalizing emerging opportunities in the broader controlled environmental agriculture sector. Eric brings to us more than four decades of experience in fresh produce and grocery industry, including more than 20 years at an executive level position. I'm thrilled to have Eric on board. I'd now like to turn the call over to Steve and talk through financial results in summary. Steve? Thank you, Mike. Before I begin discussing results, I would like to remind it everyone that our Q2 2021 results reflect the full consolidation of the Pearson Farms business, which we fully acquired in November 2020. As we did in Q1, we have provided segment reporting, historical 2020 and current 2021 too. A reminder that as we have done in prior quarters, we have provided the Pearson Farms results on a standalone basis, which is helpful context as we discuss current business trends throughout this call. Turning to results, consolidated sales for the quarter were U.S. $70.4 million, which compared to U.S. $47.6 million in the year-ago period. The 48% increase in sales was primarily driven by the addition of Pearson Farms revenues offset by a slight decrease in produce sales. 
Net loss for the quarter was $4.5 million, as a positive contribution from Pearson Farms was more than offset by ongoing pricing pressures in the produce business, as well as a $1.4 million one-time incremental electricity charge resulting from the Texas ice storm in February, which I will discuss in more detail shortly. Adjusted EBITDA of $1.6 million was driven by a close to 200% sequential increase in adjusted EBITDA for Pearson Farms to U.S. $7.4 million for the quarter. Our adjusted EBITDA loss of $3.9 million in the produce business fell short of our break-even EBITDA target and masked our more positive trends in cannabis. Turning to business segment results. As Mike has previewed, Pearson Farms had an excellent quarter. Q2 sales were 24.7 million US, were Canadian 30.4 million, which were up 136% from Q2 2020 and up 38% versus Q1 2021 using Pearson Farms functional currency Canadian dollars. For the fourth consecutive quarter, Pearson Farms retail branded sales grew more than 20%, actually 22% sequentially. So in one year, retail branded sales more than quadrupled to U.S. $18.3 million or Canadian $22.5 million for this quarter. The increase in retail branded sales between sequential periods was largely attributable to continued demand for our everyday premium products. Additionally, many provinces began their COVID-19 reopening plans and capacity restrictions decreased, particularly in Ontario, which helped spur demand in the later part of Q2 2021. Large format comprised roughly 52% of our flower sales in Q2 versus large format of 48%, essentially the inverse percentages of Q1, which in part is the reason for our improved quarter-on-quarter gross margin, as small format has a higher gross profit than large format. Wholesale or non-branded sales also increased this quarter to 6.4 million U.S. or 7.9 million Canadian, 121% sequential increase versus Q1 2021. As we have noted before, as Mike has mentioned, wholesale sales are opportunistic and must make economic and strategic sense for our branded business, so they will vary from quarter to quarter depending on available supply and demand from other LPs. Pearson Farms gross margin was a strong 40% in the quarter at the top end of our target range. Benefiting from an increase in retail branded sales at higher margins due to a percentage increase in small format, the Delta III greenhouse facility operating at full capacity for the entire quarter, which reduced our cost per gram produced, and a nice gross profit on our non-branded revenues in Q2 as compared to Q1. Since completing the acquisition of the entirety of Pearson Farms, we have been required to record a large inventory non-cash write-up in cost of sales for Pearson Farms in our statutory results in order to comply with acquisition-related fair value accounting rules. The write-up impact was meaningful, has meaningfully decreased in this quarter to 133000 versus $2.8 million in Q1 2021, uh, essentially as, as we have worked through all the flower uh, inventory that existed on the acquisition date in November 2020. As we stated in prior quarters, this is a non-cash charge that should be adjusted for when analyzing the actual operational results of Pearson Farms. Adjust the EBITDA of $7.4 million or $9.1 million Canadian was the 11th consecutive quarter of positive EBITDA and also was a record since the launch of retail branded sales in late 2019. I commend Mandish and the Pearson Farms team as they drove this record profitability from the combination of higher net sales, a stronger gross margin, and good cost control management. As they say in hockey, that's a hat trick. Going forward, as our retail partners return to more normalized selling environments, I would expect SG&A to trend higher in order to support our point-of-purchase sales and to continue our increasing market share, especially in flour. Turning to produce. Mike has mentioned the difficult pricing environment for tomatoes, which certainly impacted results. In addition, in late May, we were presented with an extraordinary electricity bill related to the unprecedented Texas storm. You might remember that in February, these storms caused major problems with the electricity grid, leading the the Texas regulator ERCOT to declare an emergency alert level. During the five-day emergency period, the real-time pricing for electricity was more than 100 times higher than normalized February pricing. 
Our Texas operations use a small amount of power to run our operational systems, but the maximum pricing of $9,000 per kilowatt hour resulted in incremental electricity expense of $1.4 million over our normal electricity rates for this period. The original invoice, which we received in late May, was for a considerably higher amount, but after a complete audit and negotiations with our power provider, it was settled and paid in late July, late June. We were, we've included more background about this extraordinary expense, including our plans to mitigate future price instability in the MDNA file today. As Mike mentioned, our Texas-based operations are strategically important to us, and we want to commend the team for maintaining and operating facilities during those five days, which was no small feat. During the quarter, produce sales decreased 4% year-over-year, with higher production volumes offset by lower pricing, as the tomato industry experienced one of the lowest pricing environments in the past 10 years. While pricing is driving lower sales and profitability this quarter, we are seeing higher production volumes as a result of ongoing efforts to improve growing efficiencies. There are also indications that pricing is moving back to historical levels, However, year-over-year comparisons remain challenging through Q3 2021, as Q3-2020 pricing benefited from the 2020 COVID impact on tomato demand with retailers. That said, we are expecting to be back to break-even produce EBITDA for the back half of 2021. Produce-adjusted EBITDA was a loss of $3.9 million, which excludes the $1.4 million incremental electricity expense in Texas. While this is a wider margin than we target, the team continues to work on efficiencies, including increasing partner-grown produce, which sets us up for the strategic redeployment of the Texas greenhouses when appropriate. I want to underscore Mike's comments relating to the significant cannabis optionality in our Texas operations. These are assets that the team is managing with an ongoing target of break-even EBITDA. Some periods, like 2020, when demand and pricing were favorable, will be better than break-even. Other periods, like Q2 2021, when pricing is at 10-year lows, will be more challenging to hit this EBITDA target. That said, the team manages for production efficiencies every day, which continues to position both our growing capabilities and our Texas operations as one of the best options for us to enter high THC in the U.S. when legally allowed. Finally, a few other highlights. In May, we experienced, we exercised a remaining option to increase our equity investment in Altum to just under 12%. The investment in Altum, one of Asia-Pacific's leading CBD platforms, represents an efficient means for village farms to participate in opportunities in this region. During the quarter, we purchased 428,000 common shares, an average price of $9.30 U.S. under our normal course issuer bid, which we announced in May. As a reminder, our decision to purchase shares under this program is opportunistic and consistent with our broader capital allocation strategy. As of June 30, 2021, we had $155 million of working capital on the balance sheet, of which $114 million is readily available cash. We've also extended the duration of our operating line of credit and filed a universal shelf registration to take advantage of benefits only available to well-known seasoned issuers when strategically prudent. The combination of a strong balance sheet, continued growth, operational efficiencies, and a very committed workforce and management team puts Village Farms in position for a strong and prosperous future. And now I'll turn the call back over to Mike. Thank you, Steve. Village Farms remains firmly on track to continue the successful execution of our strategies for near-term, medium, and long-term growth and value creation always in the context of prudent capital allocation decisions and a focus on return on investment. In the near term, Pure Sun Farms business clearly has momentum, sales, profitability, market share, and has quickly established itself as a leader in the Canadian retail cannabis market. But Pure Sun Farms is really just getting started. Importantly, our growth over the past year has been achieved without adding any new provincial markets. Adding Quebec, the second largest provincial market remains our top priority. And let me just say that we would not have added that till we turned on Delta II because we need to satisfy our customers day in and day out. And with all of our product moving to the other provincial governments, we really needed Delta II to come on, which it is next month. This has only uh, been achieved with very modest contribution from 2.0 products as well. 
in that category is still very small, but with exciting long-term growth and profitability in which we are and will participate. It has been achieved in a very congested market in which marketing and advertising is not permitted, and we have achieved our results against the backdrop of the most difficult retail environment in our lifetimes. All of this is what continues to give us great confidence in our decision to expand production. To this end, during the quarter, we received approval from Health Canada to begin cultivation of Delta II. The license increases our capacity to nearly 1.7 million square feet from the 1.1 million when we continue uh, now with the second half of Delta as completed, we'll increase our capacity to 2.2 million square feet. We will begin planning the first half of Delta II next month with our first harvest targeted for November. As we ramp Delta II production up, as always, we'll be prudent in our production decisions, growing what we can sell to continue to effectively manage inventories. And I'll take this opportunity to remind you that as we look longer term, we have an additional 2.4 million square feet of production area on the same site as our Delta, at our Delta One greenhouse, which we can rapidly convert to grow cannabis to meet future demand as cannabis legal market continues to grow and as international opportunities continue to develop. Importantly, for our future cannabis endeavors, Pure Sun Farms business has performed very much as we planned and expected it to. The results of our decades of experience in controlled environmental agricultural growing leveraging our existing high-performance operations and approaching the retail market in a prudent, thoughtful, and strategic manner. Our unmatched performance in Canada provides us with an undeniable advantage as we pursue our opportunities in strategically targeted markets around the world. In the United States, we are encouraged by the federal cannabis bill recently brought forward by the Senate leadership. We view it as an integral uh, step in the process of regulatory that will allow village farms to participate in the high THC cannabis market in the U.S. As I've discussed on prior calls, we have identified potential pathways to participate in the high THC market in the U.S., and we continue to refine multiple strategies that will enable us to move swiftly and aggressively to leverage our success in Canada for the largest cannabis market in the world. These include specific strategies that will enable us to participate in the cannabis market ahead of any conversion of our Texas assets. As I mentioned earlier, our Texas greenhouse operations represent at least $1 billion in high THC cannabis sales to village farms when we can enter that market. We are optimistic that we can continue to see this progress in the months to come and are planning accordingly. Also, internationally, we believe our capabilities and experience in Canada, the first federally legal recreational cannabis market in the world, uh, will be invaluable as we strategically target selected emerging high-growth potential markets for investment, again, with a focus on return on investment. Our Asia-Pacific-focused partner, Altum International, which recently we increased our investment, continues to build its initial market in Hong Kong, expects to move it to new markets in the near term. Europe, of course, continues to be a major focus area for us. And to support pursuit of that opportunity, we recently added Orville Bovenshin to uh, lead our European cannabis business in the newly created position of Vice President of European Business Development Operations. Orville joined Village Farms Business Development Operations team with specific responsibility for new business and operational activities in Europe in the cannabis sector. Orville is originally from the Netherlands and has deep cannabis experience, including operational expertise honed in Canada uh, through a large part of the Pure Sun Farms team and he has extensive relationships in the sector in Europe as well. It is very early days for the European market. Returns are still challenging for the early players, but we do think this market has significant opportunity and we expect to be a meaningful participant in that market. I'm also pleased to welcome Cynthia Zanellello to our corporate team in a newly created uh, position of corporate legal counsel. Uh, Cynthia has a critical role as we continue to grow and expand our business, especially as we pursue our U.S. and international cannabis act, uh, opportunities. She has, uh, brings public experience both on New York Stock Exchange, TSX listed companies, having overseen legal responsibilities for M&A, public financing transactions, and joint venture agreements, among others. Before I, I open the call to questions, I'd like to take an opportunity to properly introduce Mandish. As many of you know, Mandish joined Village Farms after working for the Ontario Liquor Board, where he played a key role in establishing the Ontario Cannabis Store, which, as you know, managed the distribution of cannabis for the retail market in Canada's largest province. 
I suspect he may have had many opportunities when he decided to join Village Farms, which speaks to our mutual collaboration. We owe a great deal of the success of Pure Sun Farms to Mandish and his exceptional team. Their knowledge of the Canadian consumer, the market, the competitive landscape are what we have enabled us to translate to the best growing operations in the country and to the best brand in the country. I live by the credo that results matter and Mandish and his team have delivered those results. So operator, we can turn it over questions now. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, will we now begin the question and answer session. Should you have any questions, please press star followed by one on your judge shown cell. You'll hear three brown clause in your request and your question will be polled in the order they are received. Should you wish to decline from the polling process, please press star followed by two. If you're using a speaker phone, please lift your hand before pressing any keys. One moment for your first question. Your first question comes from Aaron Gray with Alliance Global Partners. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning, and uh, congrats on the very nice quarter. And uh, Mandy, it's great to have you on, and congrats to your success over at Pearson Farms. Um, so first question for me. Um, so nice job with market share um, and increasing that with flour, especially with the growing flour segment that we had been seeing. You know, now we're starting to hear, you know, a number of peers looking to increase their offerings of high THC strain-specific products. You know, so through that lens, I wanted to get your input in terms of where you see the flower, the flower category evolving over the next, you know, 6 to 12 months um, and, you know, how you see your guys, you know, positioned as other people look to see your success and, you know, try to replicate some of those things. Thank you. Okay, Aaron, I'm going to let uh, Mandish answer that call. Go ahead, Mandish. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Um, thanks for the question, Aaron. So where do I see uh, the flower industry going? I think the trends you're seeing today will carry on, and those are high THC for sure. Uh, pricing is still going to be an important factor, and consumers like newness and they like variety. So I think you know what's important for us is to keep doing what we're doing. I'm, it's probably not an overly glamified answer, but it's us staying the course, consistently executing, making sure our products are readily available and we're getting national distribution and just continuing to work with our retail partners to make sure our product is on shelf and available. And so to give customers high THC everyday pricing. Um, and then what do I continue to see is, you know, you got to be in stock and you got to have uh, the product available and we got to follow that up with new strains and new availabilities. And we've been doing that. Uh, we've launched a few new strain specific uh, products in the last couple of quarters we just launched some things this past week, and we're going to continue to do that. So it's going to be a mix for us of being in stock every day with some of our leading um, SKUs. Look at Pink Kush being the number one product in Canada. Um, we've got to continue to make sure that's available, but then following that up with, with great strains that customers want. So it's still going to be price and potency, and all the factors that go into making a great product, from terpene levels to moisture content to bud size and density, making sure you're really giving that bag appeal to, to customers. So those are the trends we're seeing. That's what customers are valuing, uh, and we're going to continue to be there. So hopefully that uh, answers your question. No, that's great. That's really helpful. Thanks for that. Um, you know, second question for me, then just kind of continue on that, particularly for Ontario, you know, market where you guys are doing really well. And, uh, you know, we heard a couple weeks ago that apparently they're pushing out you know, or delaying some where they'll be taking new products for some time. You know, given your existing SKUs seem to be performing very well with your market share. You know, can you speak to, you know, how that might put you, you know, in an advantage position, you know, in the near term um, as Pearson Farms continues to have products out for me? There might be limited opportunity for others to introduce new SKUs. Thanks. Yeah, Aaron, uh, Mike's turned it back over to me. Uh, absolutely. Uh, OCS has adjusted their product call, which we know. At the end of the day, they're trying to run the business like a regular retailer in a regular CPG business. I think the amount of product calls and how often they were looking at assortment and changing things in and out, to be honest, it causes havoc. It causes havoc with their systems and their processes, uh, listing things through the warehouse. Even on the retailer side, their buy sheets, their order sheets, understanding what's available, what's not, what's new. It just creates a lot of havoc in the supply chain. So we fully expect it and, and are aligned with what the OCS is doing. And it's how regular CPG and regular retail works. I think looking at launching a bunch of new SKUs going into holiday just never works for anybody. It's just not the way regular retail and businesses run. So we commend them. We, we were working in lockstep with them. How does it impact us? 
For sure. I think, you know, you made a comment. Um, our SKUs that perform well there are going to remain performing well, and we're going to keep them in stock. So there's, our base business isn't affected by it. It doesn't limit opportunities for new SKUs to go in. I mean, we always think six, 12 months out. We're continually looking at the pipeline and communicating with all of our customers uh, at all the provinces about what's coming. So for us, it's just keeping that communication and dialogue open. Uh, Alberta and BC have different, uh, and Saskatchewan and Manitoba obviously have different protocols on how you list products. So for us, it's just planning correctly and making sure we're in lockstep with how Ontario is doing their product calls and when those new dates are. Uh, but we don't anticipate any impacts to our business, and there's definitely some benefits in that our, our uh, base SKUs will continue to perform and sell through. Thank you. Your next question comes from Andrew Pertinio with Chiefal GMP. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Congrats on the great quarter, and thanks for taking my questions. Um, good morning. Maybe just to start off uh, on the home province of Quebec here, could you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, how that conversation is going, um, you know, to the extent that you can, maybe provide some timing on when do you think that you could enter, being it's your top priority? And lastly, you know, assuming you do enter, um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, your strategy, maybe both on products and pricing, will you, do you see yourself doing anything differently in Quebec than you do in your other provinces? I'll, I'll start out and uh, I'll ask uh, for some color from Mandish as well. So look, Quebec has been a top priority and, and clearly the only reason we haven't pursued it uh, prior was that, uh, you know, when we, we want to sort of dominate the areas we're in. We want to provide our customers with all the products they need and never be short. And with the Delta Three greenhouse, you can see in the numbers that uh, across Canada, uh, including Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia, that really takes the, the bulk of our capacity. So to go into Canada, uh, Quebec and not really have that horsepower behind us, so to speak, with Delta Two, would have just been premature. Now that Delta Two is up and running, we start planning out next month. That just doesn't make uh, Quebec a priority. It makes it a reality. And I would just say uh, we're going to coincide being in Quebec as our plan with the uh, first cultivation of Delta II, and I'll limit it to that. Uh, as you know, Quebec is uh, a limited market compared to the other provincial governments and as far as product about you know, the products that can be sold, there's no edibles and so on. So flour really dominates in Quebec, and it dominates with us, as we just discussed. Mandish, you want to provide some color? Yeah, so I can answer the second part to your question, which was around, you know, what would be our strategy and approach? Our, our approach has been very national, and, and so parts of it won't change for Quebec. However, we also need to be very cognizant that Quebec is a different marketplace, and before we do anything, we'll work you know, obviously we have to establish the plan and, and what our plan is, and Mike's given some color around that. But whenever that time comes, we'll then work with our partners, the board, whoever we decide to work with there in the province, and making sure that we're right-sized on uh, assortment, on price, on offering, uh, and branding, of course. So lots to come, but I would tell you not to expect, you know, something drastically different but we want to make sure that we connect with consumers and we do the right thing for the customer, in this case, the SQDC, um, and, and have the right approach there. Thanks for, for that great color. And maybe just switching gears on, on the existing market that you guys have now. Um, you know, we've heard recently from other producers that um, there's been a trend towards more flour recently. Um, you know, how do you see that going forward? Do you think that's that's sustainable? And um, you know, obviously, perhaps tying that back with with your with your production increase. You know, you, you mentioned that um, a big part of that strategy is is with Quebec, but obviously, there's there's ongoing market expansion in Ontario as well with with the stores coming online. Um, just a little bit of color there, please. 
Well, one with, you know, ramping up to another one. So we're doubling our capacity uh, by this time next year. We'll be at 2.2 million square feet from 1.1. So, and for those saying that flour is selling more, I don't understand that. I mean, flour's always been dominant. These numbers have always been there. So I'm not sure what others are saying. Uh, those numbers have been north of 70% nationally all along. So, uh, you know, we are in, in, we have an array of 2.0 products, as I mentioned on my remarks, and we will and are participating, and we see some traction. But regarding Ontario specifically, Mandish, you want to make some comments on that? Yeah, and I also just want to make a comment on the, the statement about flour. I think where, where Andrew may potentially going is we're seeing more people, more competitors offer flour SKUs. And you're asking us, what do we view on that? I mean, I think people are just realizing what we've always known, that this game, cannabis, this industry, it's all about flour. I mean, cannabis is flour. And we've looked at mature markets across North America and seen that, yes, concentrate some of these other 2.0 products, they make up some sizable you know, amounts of the business, but flour will always be king or queen, however you want to uh, term it. So I'm not surprised that other companies and people are moving into the flower space because it's where the puck has always been and will be and so that's always been our strategy so for me for us to see other people doing more things around flower it's, it's not surprising um, and it's it's I think also proving that there's not enough money to be made in some of those other derivative based products and, and pricing will commoditize out on those as well uh, in Ontario absolutely you know seeing the store growth seeing the store count go up it's very promising continues to put give us good wind in, in our sails. And, you know, at the same time, there's still a huge opportunity in Ontario. There's still significant swaths of what I call retail deserts. Mississauga is not open stores. Vaughn, Markham, you know, millions of, of consumers still don't have access to stores in their, in their areas. So we're excited. We're excited to continue to see what's happening in Ontario and, and the ongoing store growth. And we think um, that a lot of those stores will heat with flour and we'll continue to see pull-through and sell-through of our products. So... Uh, excited for uh, for what's ahead. Yeah, and and Mandish was smiling as he was making those remarks on flour because that's providing validation to us that we always knew, and others may I guess just didn't have their model right to begin with. So thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Your next question comes from Rahul Faragazi with Raymond James. Please go ahead. Uh, morning, Mike. Hello. Steve Mandesh. Morning, morning. So thanks so much for taking my question. And Mandesh, great to have you on the call. Uh, and congrats all, all of you gentlemen. Uh, terrific, terrific quarter. So, uh, yeah, I'll start, take the opportunity to ask Mandesh a question. Um, so, you know, a few of my questions have already been asked. But really, you know, now, you know, with the, with the 40% gross margins, you know, this, this flower that you're talking about is really dominating the market. And as competition starts to really build, you know, even though they are behind you, they will sort of try to, you know, nip at you heels. How are you planning to really be defensive in the space, you know, keep your elbows out, defend your, defend your, uh, your market share, particularly given, Mike, you mentioned that many of your competitors are growing by acquisition, whereas, you know, you have opted to do the, you know, more uh, valuable organic growth. So I guess my question really is how are you planning to really defend your space, uh, particularly as retail opens? Yeah. Uh, thanks for the question, Rule. I, I think it's a good question. How do we how do we defend what's ours and how do we continue to grow? I mean, at the end of the day, we look at you know what the consumer wants, and to us, it's we got to make sure we're continuing to execute on product quality. Um, so all the things that Mike mentioned in his opening dialogue about things we're doing around drying, looking for new strains, trialing those strains. We, you know, we have a great quarter. We're happy with the macro results, but we never stop pushing ourselves and, and looking at what's possible. So quality, strains, products, uh, we have to continue to do those things, and we will keep doing them and giving the consumer what they desire. So there's, that's the first part is around product, product quality. We'll never stop innovating and looking at what consumers want. I think that the other piece is on retail sell-through. So we love the position we're in. The brand is getting a ton more traction than it ever has. I spend as much time as I can in stores and going into dispensaries and talking to bud tenders. You know, you say Pure Sun Farms and their, their eyes and light up and they smile because they love the brand, they love the product. Where I think we have some opportunity is making sure that brand awareness and product awareness is in more stores, but also making sure stores are taking advantage of our full product offerings. 
I think we have opportunities to make sure, you know, uh, that stores know what's coming, what's available, but also just, you know, recommending some products and making sure they get more of our offering in stores. Um, and so our win is on, a, you know, our next steps are more on the micro adjustments and making sure we're following up with those stores, really working with the boards to make sure we're getting distribution uh, and following up with the stores to make sure they're ordering the right inventory levels. The brand, the product quality, the price, everything's there. We're, we're, you know, Steve talks about hat tricks. I think we're checking all the boxes in the eyes of the consumer and the customer because of our strength of supply chain and our strength in product quality. We just got to keep executing on that and, and following through. So our build and path forward is much different than our competitors, uh, but it's just continued execution in our supply chain. Thanks for that, Mandesh. Um, so now my second question is sort of panning out and looking sort of Canada, U.S. Uh, particularly, you know, one thing we try to do is really illustrate to, to our clients how um, the, you know, the cannabis, market, cannabis business is really the growing business. For, for those less familiar with the story, the produce business can be a little confounding. You know, uh, Steve, you talked a lot about how those costs, you know, this, this quarter are, are likely to settle, settle over the next uh, half of the year. So I guess, you know, one important factor or inflection point will be when cannabis sort of transcends, cannabis revenue transcends uh, produce revenue. Do you have an estimate approximately when that'll be? And I'll squeeze in a part B to that question. You know, given that your produce business has really, really strong retail connections in the U.S., like Trader Joe's, Walmart, uh, Whole Foods, you know, leveraging those relationships as and when the U.S. opens up to be able to drive uh, and drive into those channels. Well, so uh, as I mentioned, uh, we've been working uh, diligently on entering the U.S. market. Uh, we're just not going to wait for uh, the conversion of the Texas assets. Uh, we see that as a huge advantage for us. We don't think we're behind because unlike Canada, the U.S. market has established itself without being federally legal. And we think that's going to drive a, chain and a change in the supply chain. And when that happens, we truly believe large-scale low-cost, premium-quality, uh, shipping it interstate uh, will eventually rule in that market. And that won't happen overnight, but we're patient about it. Not to mention, as I said, Texas you know, is behind by far the other states, but it still represents a market as large as Canada in and of itself. That said, uh, you know, upon legalization, there will be other ways that the supply chain will work, including uh, – you know, online commerce. And uh, cannabis to us is as much uh, a segment of health and wellness where we want to participate in as well as high THC, all under the cannabis umbrella. So for us, we will be looking at how we get ready for that uh, sooner than later. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Your next question comes from Scott Fortune with Draft Capital Partners. Please go ahead. Good morning, and thank you for the for the questions. Great to have you on the call, Mandish, with, with Mike and, and Steve. Uh, Mandish, maybe you can provide a little more color on on the 2.0 products and maybe the slowness of the rollout there, and an update by consumers in Canada and their uptake there. Is it more been the provincial board side of things, or, or specific 2.0 categories that have not accelerated as quickly? Uh, Thought. Um, we know that the flower, obviously, high-quality flower has been in demand. It's been tough to get up in Canada. But your thoughts on how 2.0 products roll out and your initiatives and product categories moving forward for Pearson Farm? Sure. Uh, thanks for the question. So specifically on 2.0, maybe I'll just backtrack slightly. Our view has always been it's not about being first, it's about doing something the best and the best way you can. And so like all things, we weren't the first to the party and we weren't the first on 2.0. So there's definitely some optimization in work. So when we think about 2.0, obviously vapes, tinctures, um, as well as edibles, those are our three main uh, products. And uh, some of our biggest work lately has been around, and Mike commented it earlier, about some reformulation on our vape side of the business. So our first entry was on the full-spectrum side, strain-specific full-spectrum offerings, really flavorful uh, related to the product. Uh, that proved to be a smaller segment of the vape market. You know, full-spectrum is only about 15% or so. Um, the, the bigger part of that vape market is on the distillate, which gives you a higher THC percentage. And we launched... Uh, a, 
one of, if not the highest, vape product. Uh, it was a 0.5 gram distillate, high THC, close to 90%. So following that up with a larger format, a one gram, very simply what we did there. And then we're looking at some reformulations of and uh, uh, on the distillate side to continue that momentum. So for us on vaping, consumers are still looking at the same things that they look at the flower side, which is high THC, best price. So we are launching three new formulations and those should get out to market in the coming months. And so we'll see how those do. Um, it's, it's nothing super complicated, but just continuing to look at those formulations and seeing how we can start to win better on the vape side of the business. Our tinctures are performing well. We've always done well with our high CBD uh, tincture. Uh, we've launched a balanced product as well, and, and we're happy with where those go. Um, on the edible side, our, our all-natural BC fruit chews, they're vegan, they're gummies are, are doing really well for us, and we're going to do some kind of adjustments there with formulation of flavors and size and offering. But listen, Scott, it's, it's not this huge endeavor that we're doing. We're going to continue to right-size those product categories. We like how we're positioned there, and we think there's some opportunity for us to grow in each of those segments. We don't have the same market share in tinctures uh, and vaping and edibles that we do on flour, but that doesn't mean we're giving up on it. We're continuing to dial those in with formulations uh, and product offerings. But it's not going to become a, a massive part of our portfolio, and, but we're going to see where we can take it. And it's the same things, high THC, great price, good offering of product, and working with customers and consumers to make sure we get the pull through at stores. Great, and I appreciate the color. And then maybe just overall circle back on, on Ontario, or, or what are you seeing on, on the competitive front, especially after kind of the provincial boards have gone through their rationalizations here? Are we starting to see less SKUs, um, less LPs now on the, on the shelves, and, and that's positioning uh, Pure Sun Farm for, for obtaining its 20% market share over a longer term? And then just maybe a little bit color on uh, this quarter as far as Ontario with the stores really ramping up the rollout. How are you um, looking to maintain your share on the shelf space or even growing that from a market share standpoint? Yes. So, Scott Mandish again. I think I'll take it in two parts like you asked. Are we seeing the impact? Not quite yet. I mean, there's still, you know, over 100 uh, LPs and and thousands, hundreds if not thousands of SKUs there. I think that it's going to take some time for that to sort itself out. Um, every week, Health Canada continues to send out licenses because people are able to uh, get more operations going, and that's up to them. So I don't think we'll see an immediate reduction of in SKUs. I think the OCS will take their time on assortment and, and, and these product calls. So we're not quite seeing that impact yet. Definitely hopeful that it goes there because I think there's too many to begin with and it creates a lot of noise in the supply chain and how the OCS buyers need to manage it, uh, the warehouse, even the stores, like I mentioned before. So not quite seeing that yet. On the how do we continue to, to grow and win it uh, in OCS, I would mentioned before in one of the previous questions that for us it's all about supply chain execution and pull throughout the stores. So we've continued to expand our Ontario sales team. We're still not crazy big like some of our competitors. We, we really calculate how much spend and how many heads we hire in the province. But we are expanding our sales team that's on the ground, that's working with retailers day in and day out. And like I said, it's about making sure they understand our full product offering. You know, last quarter we launched a Blue Dream SKU, which everybody said we were crazy to do because it's been in the market forever yet it was never done our way at our price point with our quality. And now people are realizing that the Blue Dream SKU that we offer is fantastic. But as a good example, some retailers didn't know that. Oh, Trump has a Blue Dream. Well, everybody loves your pink cushion. Let me start ordering that. So those are the type of conversations and dialogues that we continue to have with retailers to make sure they know they, what products they can find from Pure Sun Farms. So it's execution on the ground to get that pull through and get that sell in because we know that once their customers have tried our products, we continue to be a repeat purchase for them. And then the other piece is just with some digital uh, paid media pieces that we've done. We've, we did the Score app takeover. We saw some great traction to our website, great traction and support from our consumers. So it's little things like that as well, Scott. It's on the digital side, but it's also still in-store, making, making sure bud tenders uh, and the people that are responsible for ordering know what's on the product sheets and that we get the pull through. Thank you. 
Your next question comes from Doc Cooper with Beacon Securities. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, and Mandishwar. Um, a lot of stuff has obviously been covered, but um, and I apologize. I have dropped off for a few minutes. Um, premium pricing. Can you talk a yeah, premium pricing uh, or everyday pricing? Excuse me, everyday premium. Excuse me, uh, or that category. Can you talk about you know how the whole industry has moved? Uh, you know how that's impacting the industry and how much of the market is moving towards that. You know, everyday pricing or value price, however you want to classify it. Yeah, so I'll start off, and then I guess Steve can chime in. And thanks, my, uh, Doug. Everyday premium, that's what it's about. You know, I've, I've been banging the table uh, with the board and my team about, you know, people think premium, just because you price something doesn't higher doesn't mean it's a premium product. So what I like to call this is this is the normalization of pricing. Cannabis pricing was way overinflated from the beginning, and so everybody's talking about this price commoditization. I call it price normalization. And so I think people are really starting to wake up to the fact that if you want to give customers a product that you're calling premium, it better be worth it. You better have some defining attributes that are highly differentiated to substantiate an, uh, a price that's above normal pricing. And cannabis has been around for decades, centuries. People know what eighths and ounces should be costing. They've been buying it from their dealer or illicitly. And so to come in with pricing that was completely abnormal, I think, was a slap in the face for many consumers. So you're seeing this price normalization. I think some people are getting a bit carried away and crazy with it and trying to buy market share, and they're doing it unprofitably. So we like how we're positioned. We've always been leaders in kind of that price-quality ratio that we, we coin everyday premium. Uh, and I think you'll see more of it. I think you'll start seeing a lot less of people trying to uh, push the boundaries north on pricing um, but we know it's coming. We know that there's you know, certain products that will always command a higher price per gram. Uh, but we're starting to see this normalization, and we're leading the charge, and we love how our results are coming together as a result of it. Is there anything to add, Mike, Steve? No, Maybe I I'll think just – uh, Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to. I, I was just going to wonder if uh, you know, maybe not for your price in particular, but if you're seeing the industry. What is the average price, you know, for the consumer, from the consumer's perspective, what is the average price uh, per gram done over the past six months? Yeah, Doug, I don't have the exact average, but I mean, when I look at our eighth pack, three and a half grams, it's a small format, which is a, a really important skew for everybody. You know, we've always been in OCS kind of in the mid-20s for an eighth. Uh, we've done some small micro-price adjustments and I think what you were seeing a year ago was everybody kind of being in the upper 20s, if not in the 30s and 40s on the eighth pack, on the yeah, on the 3.5 gram pack. And now you're starting to see people move down into that mid 20s, uh, upper 20s, as opposed to the 30s and 40s. And then on the outside, you know, we we have always been in the kind of 120, 119 to 130 dollars, depending on whether it was strain specific or not. And that's another price point that I think. Um, LPs are reducing to kind of being south of 150 uh, on, an, on an ounce pack. So whatever that works out to on a per gram basis, that's what we're starting to see is kind of more people play in the 20 to 30, 35 on the 3.5 gram, and then everybody kind of be in the 120 to 150 on the ounce pack. And then profitability is a big part of that, Doug, as you know. Can you be profitable doing that? So. Yeah, and, and in other provinces, we've seen people get really aggressive. I mean, Alberta is a great example where uh, you're seeing ounces kind of be in the as low as eighty or ninety dollars, and I just it blows me away when I see that because Alberta is actually one of the least profitable provinces because they have additional provincial excise taxes, and so it's crazy uh, that I see people dropping price that low. Uh, I mean, we can we make healthy margins at all these price points. Uh, I know our competitors do not. So people are out there buying market share and unprofitable uh, in the result of uh, doing it. That's why they have ATMs. <laughs> Thank you. Your next question comes from Eric Delorier with Craig Hallam Capital Group. Please go ahead. All right, great. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, congrats on the continued organic market share gains in Canada and uh, really impressive to see uh, incremental EBITDA margins exceeding 70% with Delta 3 now at full capacity. Um, 
So as we look towards the coming quarters, uh, you got Delta II coming online, you got those regulators delaying new product calls that we've talked about, um, and you guys are still looking to enter Quebec. Uh, from my view, you know, these should all act as tailwinds to, you know, sales and market share gains, but, uh, you know, perhaps Delta II and Quebec will cause some, uh, some margin volatility along the way. So I was just wondering if you could help us understand, you know, how you see all these factors um, impacting uh, your profitability in the near term. Um, you know, in the impact of Delta II in, in the near term, uh, you know, will have no impact as, as it as it gears up. Um, you know, the the efficiencies of of Delta II longer term will actually drive down our cost of production. Uh, in the interim period, you know, we don't expect to have any you know, negative impact on our our cost per gram with the addition of Delta II. Um, with respect to, you know, our gross margin profile, you know, going forward, as we said, you know, 40% is the high end of our target range. You know, we try to operate Pearson Farms between 30 and 40%. You know, a lot of that is driven. We had a very nice uh, gross profit on our uh, non-branded wholesale sales in this quarter, uh, materially higher than, than the first quarter. So that will also be a driver of, of, of the blended gross margin for any particular quarter. So. We do expect to continue to operate in the 30 to 40 percent uh, gross profit percentage, you know, every single quarter. All right, great to hear. I appreciate that, caller. Um, so, drilling into your comments on the U.S. a bit more. Uh, so, I appreciate you guys calling out the sales capacity of over a billion dollars with the assets you already do have, and no need to buy your way into the market like your peers. Um, but you also mentioned that you're looking for additional ways to enter the U.S. Uh, beyond these impressive Texas assets. Um, Mike, you kind of mentioned some online commerce, um, uh, but I guess first, if we can kind of drill into that a bit more, you know, which parts of the supply chain would you guys look to get into um, in the U.S. considering you do already have such significant assets in Texas? Um, you know, is it on this sort of infrastructure side, you know, maybe something e-commerce, um, or would it be focusing on brands? Um, and then secondly, uh, you know, would any investment there be in the form of some of these convertible notes or sort of triggering event deals that we've seen? Or um, are you guys looking at ways to, you know, perhaps get more aggressive than that? Well, I think, you know, look, Mackey from Whole Foods is a great example. Upon legalization, he'll be selling cannabis within the Whole Foods uh, at the cash out register. So he's made that comment. And every day the 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 online commerce of movement of cannabis is tremendous. I mean, uh, here in Florida, what comes in from Colorado every day. So that's, you know, like every, that's going to be a huge component of the market. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if the current model of dispensaries uh, will eventually be, you know, that'll be around for a while. But in the end, will that be the surviving uh, supply chain and retail presence? So for us, uh We've often said if Texas, based on the second largest, most populated state, when and if it goes, 30 million consumers there, uh, would we go the normal dispensary route and try to be vertically integrated within the state? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's game on for everybody. Nobody has an advantage there today. So that's why we call it the Republic of Texas. And that's a unique situation for Village Farms. Uh, but I think uh, interstate commerce, as I mentioned earlier, uh, being able to ship outside of Texas at some point in the future is exciting to us. That said, uh, we are looking for another uh, way to enter the market right now uh, while we're still restricted on high THC. And uh, how we do that, uh, you know, I don't want to elaborate on that yet, but, uh, you know, stand by on that. Eric. Thank you. Your next question comes from Adam Bakum with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, thanks for taking hey, my questions. Um, I'll try and be brief because I know it's been a fairly long call. Uh, I wanted to touch on, you know, the wholesale market in Canada, you know, particularly with a focus on Q2 commencing production, or sorry, Delta II commencing production. Um, now, it sounds like your decision-making there, you know, in terms of pot, uh, spot purchases and, and sales are, are more geared towards, you know, individual decisions, right? Now, as you sort of gain production and this market continues to develop, do you think you'll slowly transition to more sort of take or pay sort of contracts with, uh, you know, less volatility or can maybe you can give us some color on that front? 
I'll let Mandisha answer that. Hey, Adam, Mandisha, thanks for the question. I mean, we're always open to different forms of contracts, whatever works, you know, well and favorably for us as well as our customer in, in this case. Uh, we have done some taker pays in the past. I think what we've seen on the wholesale side, Adam, is that a lot of um, other LPs not really certain on what their path looks like. And I think as we were talking earlier with Doug about pricing and where that's going, I think as the market starts to stable out and stabilize a little bit on the flower side, that's how we view it, I think LPs are realizing that their current cost of production just won't meet uh, the demands of, of where the customer wants pricing to be on shelf. And so we're, we're actively, we're always actively speaking to certain um, customers about take or pay contracts or how we can support them through, uh, through sales. Um, so I think there are certain folks that would like consistency in their supply chain so that as they launch a SKU and they go to shelf that they're not left without um, need supply. And in those cases, take or pay work really well. So we're not opposed to those type of contracts, Adam. And, and if they work out and it makes sense for, for everybody involved, we'll, we'll look at them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's great color. Um, so then just if we think about where the market's sitting currently, um, you know, you noted that July was a record month for retail. Have you also, it seems like it's also a strong market for wholesale currently. Is that, you know, the right sort of, uh, or what you're seeing at least? Yeah, and it, it is. It's a strong market right now. And we knew that this would come as soon as COVID restrictions opened up and, and stores started selling. I mean, there was a lot of stores in Ontario that we saw that got approved and licensed but didn't want to quite open their door in the middle of uh, COVID, kind of think about March, April, May, and invest all the retail, all the dollars into inventory, and then have to just be solely doing click and collect and not having an in-store experience. So we knew that there was dozens upon dozens of retailers that were just waiting for restrictions to open up. And so obviously that helped on the sell-through side of our retail products, but we also knew that meant that there would be customers looking for product or product to source immediately. So yes, Q2 was strong for that. And we continue to see kind of, we expect some of that strength to remain in the market. Maybe not as strong, but we continue to see, we'll continue, we expect to continue to see some real good um, strength on the wholesale side moving forward. Thank you. There are no further questions at this time. You may proceed. Okay, we just want to thank everybody for participating today and uh, the support uh, for Village Farms. Uh, we're working hard here, and we look forward to uh, our next conversation on the third quarter. Have a great day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.